On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. Today's guest is revelatory. I'm extremely happy to welcome author Joel Selvin to the podcast. He's written a book called Drums and Demons, The Tragic Journey of Jim Gordon, and the title tells it all. It's the story of one of the, if not the, greatest drummers of all time and his mental health battle that ultimately ended in tragedy. Joel masterfully tells the story from Jim's beginnings, how he started playing drums, to touring with the Everly Brothers immediately after graduating high school, and how he broke into the world of session musicians. Jim was a vital part of legendary tours, like Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen, and writing classic songs that are still played every day, like Derek and the Domino's Layla. He had a gargantuan appetite for alcohol and drugs, both legal and illegal. And that's one possible reason that no one realized the truth behind his mental decline. He had been suffering with schizophrenia for a long time and had been successful in hiding the symptoms. But the voices in his head eventually began to rule his life with command hallucinations. They ended his professional career and eventually were the reason he murdered his mother. Jim's entire professional career was a short 15 years, but his impact is still felt. After he was sent to prison, he was minimized and all but erased from music history. But after Jim's passing in 2023, the pendulum has begun to swing the other way and Joel's book is leading the charge. He tells Jim's story honestly and sympathetically. Like Joel said, he wrote a few good lines, but it's Jim's story. And it doesn't matter if you know anything about Jim Gordon or not, this book is hard to put down. Order it from joelselfin.com and you can thank me later. You can check out our stuff at performanceanx.threadless.com or buy us some coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. And this is Joel Selvin on Jim Gordon on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Well, before we jump into things, I wanted to thank you for joining me tonight on this. This is a topic that I've been wanting to do and a podcast episode about probably since I started doing this podcast about four or five years ago. So I'm excited to finally get a chance to do it. Well, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the book. It's uh, been about four years. I've been working on this book and you know, you spend all this time on a project like that pretty much by yourself. You know, maybe you talk to people one at a time about it, but you know, it's all pretty narrow castle. I'm really excited to uh, be out in public and, and discussing the book with people who read it. Oh, wonderful. Well, I've, I know I've got a bunch of former podcast guests who I've mentioned that the book will be coming out in February and they're excited to read it. So they're all drummers too. So uh, the uh, drummers all know. Yep. <laughs> so the way when I, when I have a, an artist on, what I normally like to do is start off in the beginning, the, how they got into music in the first place, their early bands and things like that. And we can probably do something similar with Jim Gordon, since that's the topic of this podcast, your book uh, that that'll be out in February on Jim Gordon. So let's let's kind of start there, if that's all right with you. How did 
Jim start playing music? Was it, I know his family was fairly a conservative family. His father was an accountant and his mom was a nurse, right? There's, was there music anywhere in the family or was he kind of like the black sheep in that regard? When Jim was about eight years old, he turned over some waste baskets and borrowed a couple of pots and pans from the kitchen and started banging on them. Transformed his life. He was a shy, chubby, and, and not a, a prideful kid, you know? And this, uh, the drum thing took over by age of 12. He had a full, complete drum set. His parents had remodeled the house so that he had a room to play them in. And he was off and running all through high school and junior high. He was involved with a variety of uh, orchestras and bands. And he was trained and took lessons and and went to uh, Europe with a, a, a marching band at, at age 15, had his 16th birthday in Paris. And the day after he graduated from high school, he left to uh, tour with the Everly Brothers. So that's where he starts at age 17. So when he's young doing this in school and on taking lessons, his parents are pretty supportive, but they really didn't want him to do it as a career. If, if, if I'm remembering what I read in the book. No, they, they didn't see music as a career. I mean, uh, they were middle-class and old fashioned and like you say, real strict and demanding. And no, I, I, I think though, they were supportive of the drumming because they had seen its transformative effect on Jim's character. Jim, Jim's story is just fascinating. I mean, I, I just, I was just so deep in your book. It was incredible. He was diagnosed eventually as schizophrenic. When he was younger, was there an inkling of the schizophrenia? I mean, did people notice things? Were, were, were there symptoms of it showing up as a kid? Well, you got to look back on that with a different lens. Okay. Uh, Jim was never diagnosed uh, as schizophrenic until after the crime. The psychiatrists that he saw, they, they couldn't figure how high-functioning he was in, as a professional. That, that just was didn't register as a schizophrenic to them. Okay. Depressive, maybe mood swings. And the symptoms that you're talking about, that they would be outwardly displayed and Jim would do his best to keep the symptoms from showing. Okay. There's shame involved. There's confusion. Right. There's all kinds of issues with these voices that are spilling into your brain. So, ooh, yeah, you know, there's little signs early on in his life and in his high school days and and this the real breakout was when he assaulted his girlfriend uh rita coolidge during the mad dogs and englishmen tour that that was an explosion of internal turbulence that had no bearing on like you know he wasn't angry at her he wasn't uh, trying to control her okay. it was just and he knocked her out okay. that would happen on other occasions with women too it, 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 schizophrenics are not noted for their ability to maintain human relationships okay okay but up until then he, he pretty much was able to control himself for the most part as far as we know. Okay. You know, and and there's no real sign of it in terms of like people 
things up. His father was suspicious that Jim needed help and had sent him a letter saying that, that he should seek psychiatric care. But I'm not even sure what, you know, his father was talking about. Right. And, and his father was an al- alcoholic and had gone through the 12-step program. AA yeah. in 1958. He'd had uh, many years out there and had a previous two previous marriages, a daughter with one of his wives, and, and uh, he'd avoided jail by enlisting in the army. So he'd had a troubled life. Right. And uh, he went into recovery. About the time Jim was a teenager. That was fairly soon, or fairly close to the same time, I should say, uh, when he met up with the Everly Brothers and started touring with the Everly Brothers then. Close. Jim uh, w- went out with the Everly Brothers the day after he graduated from high school in, in 1963. Wow. And uh, you know, the Everly Brothers were at the top of their the, their game. They were, they were one of the last great 50s rock and rollers who were still out there on the uh, road at that point. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, they, they went to England in September 63, uh, and they were headlining a tour with Little Richard, Bo Diddley, and a band out of London that had never been played outside of London before called the Rolling Stones. <laughs> wow. I think they eventually made it out of London. They did. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen and it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more, plus an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. PureSpectrumCBD, PureSpectrumCBD, 
Pure Spectrum CBD. So he was playing the, basically the same things night after night. He eventually got bored with that, though, right? Is that why he started looking for some for, for session gigs? Well, the session work came up, and he sort of, you know, worked his way into that using uh, percussion instruments that he was trained on rather than the drums. But real quickly there on, people were starting to hire him to play drums. And yeah, then he would go out with the Everly Brothers and play the same 10 songs every night. exactly the great showman of, of their era. Their idea of stagecraft was to play their slow songs slower and their fast songs faster. Uh, and, and Jim and Jim got tired of breaking his drumsticks, you know, because he'd have to play so fast he'd break his drumsticks. Huh? Oh, wow. yeah, you got, and, and, and the studios, I mean, that was a very exciting thing at that point in life. Uh, the recording studios were just moving into prominence. The record industry and hit records were just starting to take over the culture. Yeah. And, you know, here's Jim stepping out into that realm alongside guys like Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer, who were epic drummers who had already played on massive hit records. And, and they took Jim under their wing and, and, and treated him like a little brother. How old was he at this point? Was he still like late teen at this point? 18, 19, yeah. Wow. And, um, so, yeah, he was 18 when he played on uh, Dino, Desi, and Billy, I'm Your Fool. That was his first real hit record as a drummer. You know And then he's on Sonny and Cher's um, I Got You, Babe. Yeah. He's not the, the trap drummer, but uh, he's, he's uh, the percussionist on that. Uh, that was the number one hit. Right, and, yeah. Yeah, and early on, he's on Beach Boys records uh, for the Pet Sound Sessions. Right, that's where, uh, sick, so yeah. that's where you mentioned yeah. he played the orange juice bottles. That's right, on God Only Knows. <laughs> And have you gone back to listen to it? Yes. And now I can't not hear it. <laughs> it's amazing how much those little orange juice bottles add to that track. Plop, 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 plop. Yep. Exactly. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same song without it. It's amazing. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it God only knows what I'd be without you If you should ever leave me Funny, yeah. 
And he actually tuned them, if I remember the the book correctly. Cut them with cut the plastic orange juice bottles with razor blades. So that there are four different notes and had four of them. And there's four different notes on there, which, of course, is how many notes there are on drum set. That's incredible. Oh, my God. The ingenuity is fantastic. That blows my mind. Jim was something of a genius in the recording studio. Outside of the recording studio, life was vexing. He didn't have intellectual pursuits. It was complicated, but in the studio, that was his element, and he, and, and he was in complete command of himself there. All right, so at this point, is there any documented cases of, of him hearing voices? Because that was part of one of the, the, the symptoms that he would have later on in life. The real emergence of the voices seems to take place around 1975. Uh, okay. uh, there may have been... Some before that, but it was not something Jim reported. There certainly was discomfort, difficulty relating to people, all the sort of incipient signs of a coming disease. Right. Um, But no, 75 was a big turning point. That's when he started seeking um, uh, psychiatric assistance, although he didn't tell the psychiatrists uh, about the voices for quite a while. Okay, okay. So going back to his, some of his studio work, is, is that when the uh, serious drug and alcohol use started that early on, um, in his late teens, early 20s? No, I think that the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour was where Jim really began to exercise his uh, capacity for drugs and alcohol. Ah, okay. uh, he, he'd experimented before, but largely Jim grew up kind of square and straight and uh, had pledged not to use drugs with his uh, high school buddy, Mike Post, and, the, and his girlfriend, Jill Habibé, his first wife. So the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour, which was a sort of famous rock bacchanal was Jim's first real event status with drugs and alcohol. Okay, okay. So, but before that, he's he's been playing on a whole bunch of hit sessions, like like you mentioned, Sonny and Cher. He was also playing on things that were enormous at the time, like The Monkees, uh, Neil Young, Glenn Campbell, uh, and he even had his own release, uh, Jimmy Gordon and his Jazz and Pops band. Yeah, that was a, a little quickie that Bob Thiel popped out. I don't know that anybody noticed it. Uh, It's kind of cute. But Bob had a bunch of like uh, records at that time with session musicians. You know, it was real quick and cheap for him. That was one of the ones where there is it or I guess maybe I should be asking this. Is it one of the ones where they're taking songs that are in in the charts and making like instrumental different softer versions? there's, There's some of that. There's some instrumental, there's some originals, okay. and then, you know, it just depends. I mean, there's a, a album that was uh, right about the same time with the same musicians that Bob Thiel did 
with the percussionist Gary Coleman, and Coleman wrote all the songs on that one. But it's the same guys, you know, Tom Scott and Tommy Tedesco and and Jim on drums. And every time I read Gary Coleman in your book, I thought of the actor. Uh, from yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was actually a hurdle I had to get over. <laughs> Uh, thinking Arnold. No, no. Uh, so he did so many sessions and, and was on so many albums at that time. Is there a project that he was in that at that time, you know, before, let's say before he went on tour on the, with Joe Cocker, is there something that you think is underappreciated that you, you think you imagine would have gotten a little more notoriety? I don't know about that. He was on some of the biggest hit records of the day. Right. Uh, it, it, uh, is there something that maybe like flew did, under the did, radar? Did, that was... did they notice who was drumming on them? No, nah, that wasn't really a part of the studio musician uh, thing, right? Uh, right. Nobody knew who Al Blaine or, <laughs> was. Or, but I mean, or in, in your opinion, New York, Gary Chester. Is there something that he did that you think maybe is really good that maybe wasn't a big hit? Well, Jim was very fond of his work on the Judy Collins album, Who Knows Where the Time Goes. And that is an interesting piece. The band is Jim on drums, Chris Etheridge of the uh, Flying Burrito Brothers on bass, Van Dyke Parks on piano. The steel guitar player from Roger Miller's band, is his name's escaping me right at the moment. And then on guitar, Stephen Stills. Oh, and James Burton was in there on guitar, too. So, I mean, it was a brilliant band. Wow. And the the kind of music that they were making was pretty much borderless. What was it? Was it folk music? No. It wasn't anything like the sort of stuff Judy Collins had done before. Was it anything like the pop music of 1969? And, you know, not really. You know, there's a Dylan song, the Fairport Convention thing was the title track. I mean, the material was sort of Leonard Cohen, sort of obvious. But really, the, the music they were making for those sessions was unique to that project. And, and Jim always cites that in the few interviews he gave uh, that... It's interesting because it's not like it's a showpiece for drumming. It's a showpiece for collaborative ensemble playing. To be born, only to be born again and again and again and again and again. Hello, Ray. Let the show begin. I'm ready. And I went down some rabbit holes reading the book and going back and listening to some of these songs that I haven't heard in a long time. For example, you mentioned that his masterpiece, you think his, his masterpiece is Carly Simon's You're So Vain. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, that's like, I heard that so much growing up. I never even thought about the drums in it because it was just something my mom would play. <laughs> so going back and listening to it and uh, it's, and I actually asked a couple of my drummer friends about it. I said, okay, can you explain this to me in a way that I can understand it? And uh, maybe I, be, I should be asking you this too. What is it about that song that, that makes it his masterpiece? Well, it's not that it's like a particularly complicated drum part or something. It's a very simple drum part with, you know, eighth notes and, and whole notes. And I mean, 
It's not like there's hemi demi semi quavers <laughs> or, you know, massive paradiddles. Right. Um, but what it is, is it is a drum part that orchestrates the entire track. He okay. sets up the pre-chorus. He tees up the verse. He drives home the chorus. He opens up the bridge. Everything in, that happens in that record happens at the direction of the drum part. And the producer, Richard Perry, was looking for that from the very beginning. Jim, as you know, was the third drummer on that track. Right. And two other guys had tried it and, and hadn't been able to give Perry what he wanted. Jim spent five hours cutting that track. They think like 60 takes maybe. And I talked to Andy Newmark, who was the drummer who had taken the first crack at it. He was in Carly Simon's band at the point. Yeah. And Andy sat in the drum booth for the entire session and watched from right from over Jim's shoulder. And he said the guy in five hours never made a single mistake. That's amazing. And like I mentioned, I asked a couple of my drummer, former podcast guests and, and, and who I stay in touch with. And I, I, I kind of asked them the same question. And the best response that I got was the song is a soft rock song, but he's playing it like it's a hard rock song. They're, it's so powerful. produced by another person in an entirely different way and yes. yeah it is a, a soft rock song but not as it comes out with richard perry's production and right. jim's drumming and absolutely at what point did he decide to go back touring because he was making a lot of money as a session musician it's 1969 the world had changed quite a bit in pop music and the hit record was no longer the indomitable thing that it had been in 66. There were these huge rock bands. Led Zeppelin was a big attraction that fall. They did a two and a half hour show. There was a half hour drum solo. Right. Uh, the Who was touring Tommy that fall. The Rolling Stones were back on stage for the first time in three years. So the whole arena had shifted into this you know this live rock band the, the heroes of woodstock kind of thing oh. and that's where jim started to like move into playing with delaney and bonnie and friends okay which was a band that was kind of put together by leon russell uh who had been in los angeles for eight or nine years at that point working as a session musician he and jim had done 100 sessions together it, it, it was there were common pieces to it, but they were moving out of the studio into the public view. Although Delaney and Bonnie didn't really have the commercial impact that you know people might have expected from, because it was a fantastic band. Yeah, the Joe Cocker thing, which was taken out of Delaney and Bonnie, the Mad Dogs and Englishmen mm -hmm. did, and then uh, Jim went straight from Mad Dogs and Englishmen to London to start Derek of the Dominoes with Eric Clapton. And that had tremendous impact, although not 
in the uh, you know Led Zeppelin level of things because the record wasn't a hit right away. The U.S. tour was held before the record was released, so it was sort of like not the biggest superstar band in the world. The Layla thing would be two years away before that record was on the radio. Right, because I remember in the book you mentioned that it was released without the coda, and it just it didn't go anywhere. Yeah, somewhere in like mid-50s and then dropped off the charts. Wow, man. Okay, so a lot of this starts with Delaney Bonnie. It's where he you know, started playing, like you said, with Derek and the Dominoes and on the George Harrison All Things Must Pass album. You'd mentioned, and going back and listening to it, the Carly Simon song as his masterpiece. Before, before I went back and started listening to it, I was thinking it would be more something like, like one of my favorites is why does love got to be so sad? Tell the truth. The uh, version that's on the, the deluxe album, that's uh, a, a little bit more rock and roll or evil. Honestly, my favorite Jim Gordon drum pieces. Well, he's got a massive drum solo and Let It Rain. And uh, the whole approach to playing in a live rock band like Derek and the Dominoes was entirely different than what he did in the studio. What you do in the studio is scientific, it's surgical. His audience is a small microphone head. On stage, your audience is this fills this room or this auditorium and you have to project yourself into that space the content is uh, less detailed right that you're you're more hitting with heavy strokes and broad strokes right yeah so it's it's not quite the like Wichita Lineman by Glenn Campbell, where Jim switches from brushes to mallets in in the last chorus and and never drops a a, a beat. I mean, uh, that is pointless on stage. Right. (laughs) You are so right. (laughs) We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. 
Brooks. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell ya, I have small ear canals, uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. All right. And so, Layla, we got to hit that. Layla, I had always heard that I, I was familiar with the fact that, that Jim had written that, but I had always heard that Jim didn't want to add it to the song. Is that not the case? It was more Bobby Whitlock didn't like the addition of the piano coda to the end of Layla. Was Jim okay with it? I don't think Jim had a slight problem with that at all. I mean, it was going to make him half author of the song. <laughs> uh, Whitlock thought it was uh, didn't work musically. Whitlock also knew that Jim wasn't the sole author of the piece, that, that he had written it with his girlfriend, Rita Coolidge, and he was pretty... Um, outspoken about it nevertheless the what you hear on the record is a composite of jim's piano playing and whitlock's oh okay It's, it's her version. She released something similar on, on a, is it called Truth? Home. I haven't had a chance to listen to that yet. Can you tell when you listen that it's this, uh, the same basic song or is it, has it been changed? It is the, it is the identical melody. Wow. It is the, it is the instrumental track to her song.
written lyrics when uh, Clapton heard it. Clap, uh, Bonnie Bramlett recalled hearing Jim and Rita on twin grand pianos at the Olympic Studios in London play this piece. And Clapton was there. Oh, okay. And Rita said that she gave Clapton a tape of it. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I don't doubt that when it came to coming back to Miami for the post-production of the album, and they've got this Layla track, and it's certainly wonderful, but Clapton felt like it needed something extra. And he was right, because obviously uh, the first release of Layla without the coda the so-called piano exit didn't do very well. Right. And that's where he fixed on the idea of putting that piano part on now, where he remembered it from, how long he'd had that carrying around. We don't know. Did he know Rita was the co-author of that song? I suspect he did. He's never addressed that issue publicly. And he certainly wasn't interested in being interviewed for this book, but it figures that they just knew where the piece came from and just decided to split it up amongst themselves. And the band broke up after a two hour tuning session for Jim's drums been with Clapton claiming that he's never going to play with Jim again, but he actually does. They have some <laughs> other old, some, some other material like uh devil road, which I listened to is in, Amazing. I actually I think it's that's... out there on the internet. It's never been released. Right. But it is amazing, isn't it? it it's just amazing. It really is. I mean of some of his his drug use at that point wasn't he that's that's an amazing well that's the whole thing about Derek and the dominoes is is that by the time they start doing the second album these guys are so drugged out cocaine heroin all the booze in the world tequila was kind of a new thing in uh, england at that point so they, they were just out of it yeah. And that engendered all the personality problems you could imagine, all the communications issues you could imagine, and exacerbated everybody's personality defects. So that by the time they get into the studio to record the second album, I don't think anybody's getting along. <laughs> and Jim's appetite for this was gargantuan, apparently. He had a, a metabolism that just absorbed drugs, both legal and illegal drugs. And that does play a part when he is finally diagnosed and, and is on medication. Well, I'll jump ahead real quick, but we'll, we'll come back. But there's a section where you mentioned that he was prescribed 15 milligrams of, of some medication three times a day, and he ended up getting taking 45 milligrams three times a day, and it was still not giving him the effect that he needed. Yeah, the doctor showed up having uh, seen um, the mistake on the chart, and he expected Jim to be just a, in, in, in a zombie. Yeah. And instead, what he found was somebody who didn't even experience any therapeutic effect from this drug. God. 
But yeah, everybody remembers Jim just being able to consume massive amounts of drugs, whether tranquilizers, antipsychotics. And you got to realize that the, the psychiatric medicine of the 70s was just primitive as hell. So they, they were cannons, right. not guns, you know, right. they, 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 the sledgehammers, not screwdrivers. Right. They, 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 it was just uh, grotesque what he was doing. And then on top of that, he would load up with alcohol and, and illegal drugs because self-medicating was his most effective way of dealing with the um, symptoms of his illness. So, and this time he's playing on some other incredible stuff. Like uh, he briefly joins traffic for the low spark of high heel boys. He gets fired and decides he wants to go back to studio work at the, after during that album. Is that, is that accurate? I think he went straight back to LA. I think he was fired, and then, you know, within a month, he was back in Los Angeles and immediately went back to work as a high-paid double-scale session musician, cut Helen Reddy's I'm a Woman within a couple of weeks, and, and you know, it was right back where he started. At Steely Dan's Pretzel Logic... Also, a little bit later, Johnny Rivers, uh, he put Johnny Rivers back on the charts with uh, that New Orleans uh, song, uh, oh. uh, Rock and Roll, uh, uh, Rock and Pneumonia and Boogie Woogie Flu. Okay, okay. Uh, such a huge run 72 73 you know whether it's maria maldauer's midnight at the oasis or uh the nielsen stuff he did with perry or sundown with gordon lightfoot carly simon you know he, he was the the top gun in los angeles studios there at that time and he also recorded a song which ended up making the enormous impact in the world of hip-hop in apache on uh what, what was the name of that band the bongo uh the incredible bongo band That's, yeah that was yeah. some sort of jive deal that some hustler thought up and 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 they recorded up in canada and that was another part of the hustle and <laughs> the, the record just disappeared immediately uh but sometime many years later cool Herc, the mc that was one of the original hip-hop guys found this drum break on Apache and had two copies of it. He could keep that drum break going forever. Wow. And that was sort of the beginning of hip hop right there. 
that drum break has been sampled more than anything. A thousand samples. Yeah. That yeah, it's one of the most recognizable things in in the world of hip hop. It's it's incredible. I could probably go on for almost as long as your book, just talking to you about all the different sessions and the incredible albums that he was a part of. But we got to save something for people to read. So we'll go we'll fast forward a little bit here. When did things really start going south for Jim? mentally and when did people start to notice i think the acting out really started on the, the souther hillman foray tour 73 74 where he found himself uncomfortable in the in in the situation and was not as collaborative as he had been in previous situations and uh he hadn't been on the road for a while so all of that was uh stressful and and yeah, he, he he was having problems playing, and uh, he was not getting along with the other guys in the band, and his behavior was you know, not good. They fired him. Is that uh, is that the tour where he made the tour bus pull over so he could race semi trucks on foot? Yep, he was running out uh, out uh, on in the highway. They didn't know what the hell he was doing. Throwing a, a glass at uh, Chris Hillman at a bar, coming out. And, and and leaning on his drum set with his elbow and, and just playing with one hand during uh, one of Richie Ferre's songs. That infuriated him, just infuriated him. Okay, so there's you've got some amazing photos in this book too. And there is one around that era of him leaning over on his drum set. That is a, it's a haunting photo. I don't know if that's that incident or if it's just, it just happens to that's be him. That's in the studio. Over. That was taken by the engineer Bill Cooper, who was uh, Richie Puddler's uh, partner for many, many years, and that they Puddler produced the Souther Hellman Frey album. Okay, and Bill took that photo. It's very moody, and yeah, I, I, yeah. I, he's not playing. I think he's just leaning on the drums while he's listening. Okay, it's it's a haunting photo. Haunting. At this time, he also started hallucinating about his neighbors. Right, is when his, his neighbors were blue yeah, aliens. You know, the neighbors were you know blue skinned people who had spears and and wanted to uh, harm him. Then there's the the weeding on the on the hill of back of his house that he had to weed this hill yeah. over and over and over again. At this point, he was really getting tortured, and it was really hard for him to keep the stuff inside and to function in his professional world. Yeah. Uh, there, there were episodes, little incidents that just went unexplained and people just didn't know what to think of it. It's, there's no short of a shortage of irony in that the rock scene of that time was so hospitable and accommodating to sex deviants, drug addicts, alcoholics, but they had no idea what to do with somebody who was actually mentally ill. Well, yeah. And, you know, with the uh, copious amounts of drugs he was taking, I can imagine maybe they thought it was a side effect of that, possibly. Who knows? What they, they, nobody knew what to make of it. Nobody helped him. They just like averted their eyes at, 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 crucial moments where things went bad and, and, you know, waited for Jim to come back around and count off the start, uh, the, the track again. His mother at this point was the main voice that he was hearing. Is that, is this about that same time or is, had that been happening already? His mother, uh, his father died in uh, 1972 and 
Jim felt that his mother's character changed after that. I don't know that that's so. We have no idea. Yeah. But in his reality, that's what he felt. And his mother's voice became very dominant in the cacophony inside his head. And she was a controlling figure who wouldn't allow him to eat, wouldn't allow him to sleep, didn't want him to play music. But this isn't the real life mother. Right, right. The real life mother would have Jim over to dinner and fuss over him about why he wasn't eating while inside Jim's head, her voice was telling him not to eat. Unbelievable. That is just, I mean, no, I, I don't mean this in a glib way, but that's mind blowing. She's sitting there and yet he's also, he's hearing her say, why aren't you eating? And But he's also hearing her voice in his head saying, don't eat. That just... I, I can't even imagine that the, the hell that has to be in your head. Well, his viewpoint was that she was controlling him, that she was uh, tricking him, that uh, she was playing these games that he that, that, that forced him into doing things he didn't want to do. Uh, that, that, that's also true of him seeking medical uh, assistance, you know, checking into hospitals. That was always, you know, because his mother was the one who was doing it. I mean, he got very paranoid about his mother. He, he eventually blamed his mother uh, for uh, the death of Karen Carpenter and Paul Lynn. I uh, saw and, that. And this, yeah, no, he, this is severe, but not an unusual focus for schizophrenic. If you were to talk to a psychiatrist who work with schizophrenics, they understand this kind of syndrome where one voice becomes the dominant voice and it becomes controlling. They talk about command hallucinations, and that's what he suffered from. They're one of the most severe symptoms in all of mental illness. And that is these voices will command you to do something, and should you not do it, they will enforce their demand with headaches. The psychiatrists know it as the electric hat band. Jim called it white hot cruelty pain, but it's the kind of headache that makes you crawl on the floor and wet your pants and just absolute torture. Did he know that that voice was a product of his brain or did he think that it was actually his mom in his head? There is a point in treatment where he came to understand that he was the architect of the voices. Okay. I think he had to learn that. But even then, that didn't solve the problem. That didn't make the voices go away. That didn't change his reality. That didn't bring him back to somewhere where he goes, oh, I'm just making this up. I can ignore this. He couldn't right. ignore it. Right. There was no ignoring him. Schizophrenics don't live in the same world that you and I live in. They have an entirely different set of perceptions. And as a result, their reality is entirely different from ours. And they can't, they can't join us in our reality. They are stuck in their world. Right. And if it's actually causing, like you said, those white hot cruelty headaches that, you know, that's a, that's actually happening to him. So, you know, it, it's, it's just, I, I can't even imagine what it's got to be like to go through that. But you've also stated in the book that there's a strong significance to a song he wrote during his short-lived second marriage, uh, I Can't See You Anymore. That that may have been a, a, a peek into his, his mindset or his brain. I'm not sure. that uh, I, 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 The title carried enough irony for, for me to make comment on it. <laughs> okay. uh, it was a, a pop song that was probably mostly written by Renee Armand, his wife at the time. And um, 
it just it was hard not to note that that was their last composition together. Okay, okay. So these, uh, what, am I, what am I trying to say? These command hallucinations, they really started having an effect on his career, like uh, having an invisible argument during Hall and Oates sessions, making him turn down. It was a whole tour with Bob Dylan, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it kind of came to a head during... Paul Anka sessions and the Johnny Rivers sessions, those were all part the, of the command. What, what, the, the Paul and Oates and Johnny Rivers sessions and, and the thing with Bob Glob and, 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 you know, these episodes would occur during sessions. Nobody really understood them. Right. They just happened. And Jim was getting less dependable and people were noticing it. He got into a beef with Mike Post, who had been with the, uh, since they were in high school together. Yeah. He had Jimmy Bowen was somebody he'd been working with as a producer since the very beginning. He decided, oh, Jim, really, you know, you can't work with Jim two days in a row. He's not consistent anymore. Yeah. So he was starting to, to fumble a little. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it came to a head when Dylan called and offered him a job. And his mother's voice wouldn't allow him to take it. Wow. And he really was unhappy. He wanted to go on tour with Dylan. And he turned around after saying no to Dylan and called Paul Anka, who he knew from Burt Backrack sessions. Right. And Anka hired him to play a Vegas engagement. And Jim went out to Vegas and got set up for the sound check for the rehearsal. He played one note on his drums. His mother's voice told him no more. You're dead if you do. And he looked at the music director and he said, I can't do this. I have psychological problems. Wow. And he went home. And that was wow. pretty much the effective end of his professional musical career. Oh, my gosh. But it continued to manifest. I mean, he, he actually got more voices in his head. I believe one was his brother and one was his daughter who made him call her Queen Amy. Is that right? His daughter. Oh, man. So, Jim, Amy was born in 1969, and Jim left the marriage before she was two years old. Yeah. And he struggled with the whole idea of being a father. He really had no idea what a father was supposed to do. And had no ability to relate to anybody on a human basis. I mean, he didn't have friends. Yeah. His relationships with women were very uh, trying and not successful. Right. And so here's this poor young girl who's growing up with a father who, who has no ability to form a bond with her. And he felt horrible about this. This was something that he talked over with psychiatrists openly. Not the voices in his head, but the, you know, oh, my daughter, I can't do this with her. I can't do that with her. And he felt that Osa, his mother, was controlling his relationship with his daughter. And she was. She was uh, the gateway to uh, his visits with his daughter. Right. She was they a supervisor. at her house. Yeah. Yeah. So all that was very confusing to Jim. There comes a point where he doesn't even uh, see his daughter anymore. I think the last time he really saw her, she was like 10 years old. And so when he went to jail, I don't think he'd seen her for four years. Wow. And the, the amazing thing to me is that all of this 
happen in about what 15 years his entire career is like 15 years long that's right unbelievable i mean he was part of so many historic and classic sessions and, and historic tours even and it was all a decade and a half yeah his uh playlist is uh, is unbelievable and uh he, he was such a brilliant drummer that he could find a place for himself in anybody's music, yeah. uh, whether it's Glenn Campbell or Frank Zappa, whether it's Tom Waits or, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that stuff's amazingly complex. And he's the, the parts of it are reading charts that are so dense, it's what musicians call fly shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then the other parts, there are no charts. It's all improvisation. That's amazing. So those Zappa things called for very specific type of virtuosity, uh, and, and Jim had it. getting worse and worse he was getting the voices his mother's voice was telling him if i'm not mistaken to take down his gold records throw them in the garbage and he would get drunk bring him back hang him back up and then he would start to sober up and the voices would tell him to throw him out again and this would happen multiple times a day yeah then they wanted the drums too wow is that what finally made it made everything yeah, snap it, look that was going on the last couple months before the crime every night two three four five times a night taking the gold records out stacking them by the dumpster pulling the drums out of the garage stacking them by the dumpster and then drinking until the voices died down and taking everything back the last time that happened was the night before he killed his mother and he had called her if i'm not mistaken and told her to stop it and he was going to kill her and the notes she wrote about to document those calls are chilling it's so frightening yeah, she was frightened, and, and with good reason. She did not know who this person was on the phone. Uh, Jim calls her up and is furious with her, and he knows that she's making him throw his gold records and his drums away, and uh, he knows that he's doing all, she's doing all this stuff to him, and she must have been befuddled beyond belief. What are you talking about, Jim? Yeah. But terrified. It's not like she'd seen him recently. It's not like he was coming over for dinner anymore. Right. He was living by himself, not leaving his house, just drinking and using drugs and maybe occasionally getting out to a bar and seeing some people, but not much. I mean, really just a horrible, severe, mentally ill person. And yeah, her nurse's training had her make these notes and they were found after the crime and she had... Uh, made detailed notes about the phone conversations that she had with Jim and what she'd been doing that night and trying to reach her uh, other son. She was about to move up to uh, Washington to live with uh, uh, Jim's older brother. It, it's a nightmare, a, a, a nightmare. And that's eventually how they figured out, well, not eventually, because it was pretty quick, they figured out that Jim had committed the murder because they found those notes. Yeah, they, 
they found the notes. They talked to the brother and they went over to his house and he was lying on the uh, floor trying to hide under a coffee table, crying a couple of empty vodka bottles. And the cops uh, come in the door and he says, I'm sorry, I did it. I killed her, but she was torturing me. Wow. So they arrest him and he's and while he's going through this, he, he now he can't take his, any of the medication that he's on is, is he's hallucinating. more. I believe there's an instance where he, like the cell he was in, he was hallucinating that was on fire. Yeah, he woke up the next morning and the cell was engulfed in flames and, uh, he, you know, everything was hot to touch. And yeah. Oh, my God. He was already in hell. Yeah. But now his mom, Osa's voice had left at that point, but it was kind of replaced by his older brother. Yeah. And an aunt. And yeah, yeah I mean, the, the voices didn't ever stop for Jim. They just changed. Just changed. Yeah. So what was Jim's life like in prison? I mean, he, you know, he's in prison literally half his life before he passed away. So I know there's opportunities. Well, Jim, to was kind of, Jim was kind of comfortable in prison as far as he could be comfortable. He, uh, avoided all his parole hearings, undermined them. He was not a, a popular guy out on the yard. Uh, from talking to people who did time with him, he was pretty reclusive and not, you know, buddy-buddy. But that's typical of, of, you know, older schizophrenics. Like I said, they, they don't have any ability to relate to people, to form bonds. And so he was quiet, spent a lot of time in his cell, had to take the psychiatric medicine. And you can imagine what the California Penal Authority, uh, what their policy is for mentally ill people is just to get them doped up out of their minds and out of the, you know, their hair. Yeah, exactly. And he, he, he signed an agreement when he went into uh, prison that he would take the, the psychiatric medicine and he took it every morning. His contributions to music are enormous, but also being buried at the same time. I, I, I watched that Wrecking Crew documentary and there's almost no mention of him in that. It's, no, there, and, and the, you know, he doesn't show up on the Rolling Stone list of great drummers and stuff like that. Right. Uh, the matricide, it's just so shocking yeah. to people. And literally the world turned its back on Jim in an instant. Nobody came to visit him in jail, uh, one person, Jay Osmond, the drummer of the Osmond brothers, came to show support at the trial. Wow. Uh, he was just sent away, and nobody wanted to think about him ever again. That's amazing. And it's it's heartbreaking because— Well, it, they didn't know the story. Right. right? They, all they knew was that this guy killed his mother. Yeah. And they didn't know— that there were 15 hospital admissions, that there was years of psychiatric uh, uh, help and, and no progress. I mean, Jim got to hate doctors because they couldn't do anything to help him. So that part was missing from the story. All it was is like this drummer that everybody had forgotten about because he wasn't playing anymore, kills his mother and, and goes to jail. Like, you know, don't look, avert your eyes. Right. And nobody dug around to find out, like, what the story was. It wasn't part of his defense in the trial. It wasn't part of anything. Wow. It wasn't part of the stories that were written in Rolling Stone or Washington Post. Oh, man. And that's what this book is about. This book is about how courageous Jim Gordon was 
in his battle against a severe and pernicious mental illness. Yeah, it's, I honestly didn't know the story, like, like basically the rest of the world at this point didn't know the stories. I didn't, I mean, it was, it was a fascinating, fascinating story for me. I'm much more sympathetic to him than I am appalled by what he did. I mean, it, what he did is appalling, but it's what he was battling was just something I can't even imagine. Once you understand the context that Jim was living in, things are different. Yeah. Once I was able to see into his troubled heart, had nothing but compassion for him. And it is the real trick of that book to thread that needle of how to tell this story in a way that is fair and honest to his victims and yet at the same time, compassionate and understanding to Jim. Well, you've done it masterfully. It really put me on my heels. I finished, I actually finished reading it this morning. And afterwards, I just kind of sat there and stared at, at the computer. Just like, I, I don't have anything to say. I, I'm just, I've, I've, I'm breathless. It's, it's an incredible story. The second half of that book is so wrenching yeah. that when I was having to do revises, my stomach would go sour when I got to the second half of the book. And I'm also, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a glutton for work. <laughs> I, I love work. And uh, it's not uncommon for me to spend 10, 12 hours writing. With this book, sometimes I had to go upstairs and, and take a nap after two hours and not go back. Wow. It makes total sense after reading the book, uh, how that would be. It it is really a a heart-wrenching story, and particularly the second half. But I couldn't stop reading it. I was just engrossed in it. So you've done an incredible job. And I, I thank you so much. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me about this. I mean, Jim passed away in 2023 and I honestly don't remember hearing much about it, which, you know, hopefully with this book coming out, people will learn more and be a little more accepting of him well, and the situation. Jim's death was a, an interesting phenomenon because instantly the world changed their mind about him and where he had been this pariah. Now he was suddenly seen as a victim of mental illness. And it was just in a heartbeat that happened. I felt it. I experienced it. And it was long overdue. There there were many people that didn't want to talk to me. There were people that didn't want to deal with, with, with this book. It was controversial to the extreme. His family didn't want to have anything to do with it. Wow. Uh, understand. Um, I mean, this was a hugely traumatic episode. Yeah. And it shaped their lives in a way that it never came out. It, 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 that was a stain that, that never left their lives. Right. Not just Jim's life and not, you know, but all the people around him in the blast zone. So I understood that. And then when Jim died, all that changed too. Oh, really? All of a sudden, oh, yeah. Um, Mike Post called me to tell me that Jim had died and that the family wanted to get out ahead of it and they wanted to put out a release, but they didn't know how and they wanted to know if I would. So we put out the press release that said Jim had died. And from that point on, the family was now supporting the project. But he had to die for that to happen. Wow. 
I honestly, I don't even know what to say about that. That's that's incredible. My every God. person's death decreases us all, and you, you you know you can't wish for somebody's death. But in this case, this is the only place where Jim was ever going to find peace. Well, I love the way you you described his talent. He said he heard music in the drums, and I think yeah. I think that is the perfect descriptor for his life. Even when he was battling his demons, he heard music in the drums. And and going back and listening to the all of the songs and, and the albums that you talked about as many as I could in prepping for this. I am firmly of the belief that he's the greatest drummer of all time. Well, he just had skills that were almost supernatural. Yeah. And I suspect that they have their roots in the same electrochemical setup that his disease does. I'm also certain that when he played drums, he didn't hear voices, that the rhythmic entrainment and the report of the drums would just absolutely block all that out. And once he was in the world of the rhythm, once he was in the, the arms of the mighty groove, he was safe, he was secure, he was confident, and he was on top of the world. Without that, no, none of the above. But while he's playing drums, then he's this guy. And as far as the skills go, I mean, you said you were talking to other drummers. Drummers all know. I mean, they, they hear what this guy does, and they know they can't do it because the level of intuition is too great. I mean, I've had guys try and explain it to me, you know, like, oh, you retard the second beat of the, uh, and, and then it puts a roll in the whole measure. But you can't do that. You have to be able to divide time in your head with, it with such a degree. And, and of course, the classic example is the Tom Petty track, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So he finishes cutting a Tom Petty demo. They're all studio musicians except for Tom and Mike Campbell. This yeah. is before the Heartbreakers. I love this story, by the way. <laughs> and they go in to listen, and Jim looks at the engineer and says, do you have any uh, spare tracks? Because I could double my drums. And Petty <laughs> and Campbell look at each other like, what did he just say? I mean, doubling the drums, that's every cymbal crash, every paradiddle, every kick of the kick drum has to match exactly, not just in terms of time, but in value, in loudness. Otherwise, it's just going to smear what he recorded. Right. Right? So he goes out and does it in one take. That's other I talked to Campbell and, and Ben Tench, who was there at the session, and both of them, they, it was like they'd witnessed a miracle, and it, had, and it was fresh in their mind like it had happened last week. That's superhuman. It may sound like, you know, we've gone over the entire book, but we haven't. I mean, we've just barely scratched the surface in this podcast. And then I implore everyone to go check out this book because there are so many incredible stories. There's so much more to it than the tragedy of the murder. That's one part of this story. There is so much more to it. And it's incredible. It's, Jim's story is amazing to me. And the book, it captures Jim's story. I got a good sentence or two in there every so often, but really <laughs> the book is Jim's story. And that's the power of the book that is its engine. And it will take you from Grant High School to the end of his days. And it'll pull you along because what Jim's life was, was so determined by his illness, but he fought against it with the best weapons he had, which were him and his drum set. 
And it's kind of amazing in archetypal thinking, you know, the spiritual connection with the drums and the ancient nature of it. All this stuff sort of rolls up in Jim's story in a super powerful way. And it's it's not my story. It's Jim's story. And that's what the book is, Drums and Demons. Where can people pick up the book? Uh, it'll be out at the end of February. Um, and how can they follow you and, and keep track of, of what you're doing uh, with this book and with future releases? www.joelsalvin.com. Uh, look me up. Check me out. I'm always glad to talk to people. And 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 this is great. You know, like I told you, you spend all this time doing these books on your own and then get the opportunity to find out like how they, they're received in, in these conversations. So this is valuable and important to me. Thanks so much for spending the time. Oh, thank you for, for writing the book and, and letting me read it. I have, I've just been fascinated by it. Is there a, a social media presence for you or is it the best thing to do is to just check the website? You can, for fa- you can face, you can find me on Facebook. I'm out there. Awesome. Well, Joel, thank you so much for all of this. This has been fascinating. It was a fascinating read. Thank you so much for Thanks all your so time. Thanks so much for all your good words. And, and uh, you know, I appreciate your enthusiasm a lot. It means a lot to me. Thank you. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.